Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, we meet the doctors of love. We're hacking online dating, asking how to maximise your chances on that crucial first date, finding out why some people are compatible while others are not, and when one of these voice samples was recorded, this woman was at the peak of her fertility. One, two, three, four, five. One, two... Three, four, five. But can you tell which one? Stay tuned to hear how. Plus, we have news that late-night texting and Facebook checking is affecting the sleep of young people, why chemistry teachers have a lesson to learn about one of the world's most popular classroom experiments, and how scientists have created the world's first remote-controlled sperm. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. According to the headlines you may have seen this week, you'd be forgiven for believing that the UK is the first country in the world to permit doctors to create so-called three-parent embryos. That's not strictly true, as we'll find out, but this is designed to help prevent usually lethal genetic diseases caused by defects in structures in our cells called mitochondria. With us to discuss this is Robert Winston, Emeritus Professor of Fertility Studies at Imperial College London. Hi, Kat. Uh, Actually, we're not the first country to permit mitochondrial transfer. It's already been done in the United States 20 years ago, and we haven't permitted it in the UK yet. We have two Houses of Parliament, and it hasn't gone through the House of Lords. Hopefully it will, and then there will be the possibility of getting a licence, but it's not permitted in the UK at the moment. So if we can unpick a bit about the science of this. So uh, people have referred to this as as mitochondria. What, What are our mitochondria and what's gone wrong with them? Mitochondria are tiny dots of material in most cells in the body, and they are responsible for providing the energy which drives the cell. And so they are involved with various chemical reactions, which include the Krebs cycle, which in fact generates uh, the way that we, we, we make energy. They contain about 16,000 base pairs of DNA. So there's a tiny amount of DNA in those cells. Because we have 3 billion. That's the rest we have of 3 billion. DNA. So that's about 0.001% of your DNA is actually in your mitochondria. And these mitochondria, in no way, as far as we know, 
have anything to do with your personality or being how you are, the so-called phenotype as we see it normally when we look at somebody or when we talk to somebody, or your strength, your beauty, your intelligence, your memory and so on. It's just the energy factories. Just the energy factory. And a lot of it has been said about uh, women who have children with this mitochondrial disease because it's only the women's egg cells that have these mitochondria that then go ne to the next generation. Well, actually, that's probably untrue too because it's probable that sperm have mitochondria, but nobody ever mentions that. But they don't, <laughs> but they don't seem to get into the egg, actually. I, there are a whole lot of things about mitochondrial disease which have been extraordinarily discussed over the last few weeks. First of all, I think that the whole issue of mitochondrial transfer is much more trivial than has been generally stated. Um, I think that um, it's probably been rather unwise to attract the amount of publicity it has done because it's bound to bring out all the people who are hostile to in vitro fertilization. Um, but basically, there are a few people, actually it's really quite rare, who have mitochondrial disease and they suffer from old gradual decreasing of brain activity, loss of muscle power, loss of uh, kidney and heart function. And many of these people die as children, often before the age of four. Sometimes they go on to adults and they have a form of muscular dystrophy or blindness or other very serious disorders. It's, these diseases are horrible. If we can, and there's no way of curing them. Once you've got them, there's no chance. So what has been proposed is that mitochondrial transfer should be done by taking out the nucleus and putting it into a cell with fresh mitochondria, alternatively transfusing mitochondria into the cell where the, where the nucleus already is, having got rid of the old mitochondria. And um, this is what the license is being applied for from my colleagues in in uh, um, Newcastle. So this is, I guess, where the idea of the, the three people involved, I know that a lot of people say these aren't three parent embryos, that there's, it, it, from it, one woman's egg cell, you're taking these mitochondria, the energy yes. factories, and then you're mixing it with the DNA from the two but biological you're, parents. But you are more of a three per people person when you've had a blood transfusion because you've had hundreds of cells, complete cells from another individual. The only difference is that the mitochondria persist, they go on dividing and they live indefinitely and they pass on to the next generation. That's the difference. So you potentially have a permanent cure. The probability of, is that the difficulty, of course, is that we don't know whether this is going to happen because there's no animal model. So at the moment, we're still hoping to do this, but there are a number of desperate mothers and fathers out there who would not want to see another child die, who feel very strongly that they should be given the autonomy to do this. And so consequently, I think that it will be likely it will go through the House of Lords, and I hope it does go through the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority as well. There is a risk of producing an abnormal baby, but I think it's just like when we did in vitro fertilization the first time, we didn't know what was going to turn out. And certainly when we biopsied an embryo for the first time for pre-implantation diagnosis. We didn't know then whether the baby was going to be normal. We did all sorts of experiments, but ultimately the human, of course, is unique and very special. And I'm sure the parents who've had wonderfully happy, healthy children as a result of these techniques would say, yes, this is a really great thing to, uh, to be doing. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. I, I mean, I know that the women who first went into pre-implantation diagnosis, I think, were immensely brave. And I remember having long discussions with them because this nobody had used IVF for genetic disease before. But as I say, I, I think it's 
I think we've, I think two things have happened which are perhaps unwise. One is I think that the amount of importance of this has been rather exaggerated, and I think that's, in fact, therefore focused too much attention on it. And secondly, I think it was very unwise to suggest that if we didn't do this first, we would leave our primacy in this area. In my view, to treat a child because you want to be first seems to me a very bad reason for doing it. And really, very briefly, what's the the timeline going forward for this? Because this has now gone through the Commons, but this isn't suddenly off we go. We're going to do this now. No, I think you'd have to ask the people in Newcastle. But I think if the HFEA give a licence, I imagine they might try. And, they must have some patients lined up. I know that the patients have been in the media, so I imagine that they will try and do this this year or next. Uh-huh. The vote in the House of Lords is actually on the twenty third of this month, and I'm actually away. But I'm just wondering whether I should come back and speak in the debate. So I might do that. I'm, I'm, I, I hope you will. I haven't decided yet, but I think probably they'll expect me to. So it means breaking, breaking a, a very short holiday. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for joining us now. That's uh, Professor Robert Winston from Imperial College London. If you have any thoughts or comments to make on that subject, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, should computers and mobile phones be banned from the bedroom? New research from Norway suggests that electronic devices with bright screens could be disrupting the sleep patterns of teenagers, 90% of whom in the study admitted to using a screen in the 60 minutes before they went to bed. Mari Heising, based at Uni Research at Uni Research Health in Bergen, says the resulting sleep deficiency is profound. We did a study on this last year where we found that for every weekday, the adolescents get two hours less sleep than what they should be getting. So that's a two-hour sleep deficit every single day. And again, we know that having not sleep sufficiently is related to poor physical and mental health, as well as school absenteeism and lower school performance. Is there evidence, Mari, that this problem is an acute one? It's just happened or it's getting worse? Or has it always been like this? Uh, Well, yes and no. I think that, of course, there have always been people that have not been sleeping enough, but there are uh, evidence that it might be getting worse for teenagers, that they're sleeping less than what they did many years ago. And your thought would be it's the distraction of having electronic devices, because the data I've seen, um, it's Mm. something like 97% of American adolescents Mm. have Mm. at least one electronic device with a screen on it in their bedroom. Yes, and that's mostly the same we found in the Norwegians, that 90% of them did spend some time on some electronic device the last hour before they went to sleep in their bedrooms. So we're getting to an American level. Who did you look at in your study and how did you actually do this work? Well, this is part of a large epidemiological study, 10,000 adolescents in um, a county in Norway. So we invited all the adolescents in the county and they were able to answer these questions on the internet uh, during their school days. And for those who were not in school, they answered at home. I presume they didn't answer at night, just before going to bed. <laughs> we don't know, actually. <laughs> we might be part of the problem here. Indeed. And this was to enable you to probe how their screen use or exposure to mm. electronic devices is linked to their sleep patterns. So you got data on how they were sleeping and how much computing they were doing. Yeah. So this is part of a big study. and This was one of the aspects that we were able to cover more um, detailed. When you broke that data down, what trends were emerging? So what we did find then was that uh, the hours of screen time during the day, as well as the last hour before they went to sleep in their bedroom, were related to sleep duration and how long it took for them to fall asleep at night. 
And how do you account for this effect? Is it just that by playing around on an electronic device, a person by definition is not going to sleep? Or do you think that it's causal? Do you think that the use of the device makes a person more prone to poor sleep afterwards? Yes, we do think that there are multiple pathways and some of them direct. That is, many of these uh, screens have quite bright light and some of the blue light might impact your hormone production or the sleep hormone. So it actually sets your clock off a little bit. So in the same sense that being outside in the morning helps your sleep, having very bright light in the evening will probably delay your sleep pattern and making it harder for you to fall asleep at night. But as you say, it's not just the biological effect here. It's very probable that using screens are in a way brain activating and socially activating. So getting activated and enthusiastic or into what you do, then you're not relaxing. And that's what you need to do when you go to sleep. What do you think then the implication of this is? Do you think that actually there's a reason to be concerned and we need to consider some kind of action? I think that all teenagers or most of them are going to use their screens and that's okay. I think it's more finding that balance between how much time you spend on your screens and doing other activities, school, friends and physical activity. And maybe at night we can be more definite and say that it's good to prioritize your sleep and by logging off at night and keeping the electronics out of your bedroom and uh, also trying to log off the last hour before sleep, you'll be uh, helping your health and maybe also school performance. There must be some implications for adults in this too, surely, because if you look at the data Facebook have got on Mm. people's use of their platform, one of the last things many of their adult users do before they go to bed is quite clearly checking their Facebook page and see what their friends are up to. So are we all actually probably suffering in the same way these teenagers are? Yes, I think we are. And it's very possible that the same mechanisms works for adults. Uh, It might be that for adolescents, it's a very sensitive time. You're During your teenage years, you need your school performance and a lot of things happen that have major consequences for the rest of your life. So I think it's important as parents that we try to help them to improve their sleep. But maybe this is a good opportunity to look at our own use of screens and maybe improve our own sleep as well. So shut the laptop and pick up that book instead. That was Mari Heising. And uh, one listener who isn't convinced on Twitter at Naked Scientist said, Wilson says, this old person, referring to himself, walks straight from a screen in one room to bed in another and then back again with five hours sleep in between. Now, how are your languages? Pum, Apfel, Apple, Mela. Human language is gloriously diverse, but is this the same for other species, say like chimpanzees? Is there a universal chimp language with dialects and accents? Or would a Scottish chimp and a Dutch chimp just get their wires crossed? A paper published in the journal Current Biology has been answering just this question. Greer Jackson investigates. Chimps make certain calls for certain foods, just like humans have words for things. This is a Dutch chimp called Freck saying apples. But does mean apples everywhere in the chimp kingdom? If a Dutch chimp went to Scotland and met a Scottish chimp, 
no, this isn't some terrible joke, and wanted to talk about apples, or apfels in Dutch, would they understand each other? Would they adapt to become more Scottish in their accent, learn English for apples, or simply shout apfel louder and louder and slower and slower, like us humans do? Well, this is exactly what Katie Slocum from the University of York has been trying to find out. Nine Dutch chimps were put into an enclosure with nine Scottish chimps at Edinburgh Zoo. Yeah, so we were actually just very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. This was a, a big challenge for Edinburgh Zoo, so um, they brought these new Dutch chimps over to really enlarge the Edinburgh group and um, have an active breeding group. And so we were able to just get in and before they integrated them into this big group, uh, record their calls and their preferences um, and then track them over time as they lived together and started to get to know each other. To begin with, they had very different calls and very different food preferences. The Dutch chimp Freck and his companions really liked apples and had quite high-pitched calls, as you heard before. The Scottish chimps, however, were not so keen on the old apples. Meet Lucy, the Scottish chimp. It's quite hard to hear, but essentially it's a low grunt and nothing like the high-pitched shrieks that Freck makes when he sees apples. We focused on the apple calls because that's where we found a really interesting difference between the two groups. So um, the Edinburgh chimps, they didn't particularly like the apples and they gave these low-pitched, um, quite gruff-sounding grunts. <laughs> like that. Um, and in contrast, the Dutch chimps who really liked the apples gave much higher pitch, more tonal grunts, more... <laughs> and so at the beginning in 2010, we had a really clear difference in the calls that these two groups of chimps were actually giving for the same type of food. And so you put the Dutch chimps in with the Scottish chimps to see how their calls and tones would change. Yeah, so um, just one year after integration, so after a whole year of living together, disappointingly, we found nothing had changed. But we then looked at the social data and actually found that although they were living together in one enclosure, they didn't really like each other very much. So they weren't spending much time with members of the opposite group. So when we came back in 2013, so they'd had three years now to live together and get to know each other, the social data then showed that they actually started to like each other. So they'd formed some really strong friendships kind of across those original groups. And it was at that point that then we found that their calls had actually converged. And we found that the Dutch chimps had changed their calls to sound much more like the Edinburgh chimps' calls. This is the old freck. Now meet the new freck. And compare it with Lucy, the Scottish chimp again. It's practically the same. Freck and his Dutch friends became more like the Scots, but why not the other way round? Katie theorises that this is perhaps because the Scottish chimps were more dominant or perhaps there was more pressure on the Dutch chimps to fit in because they were immigrants. But the Dutch lot didn't completely pander to the Scots. Although the Dutch chimps were now giving a much lower pitched um, call, they actually still really loved apples. And I suppose this is all quite surprising because my understanding is that they thought the key difference between chimps and human language is that chimps couldn't adapt their calls like humans come, i.e. I might sound more northern when I'm talking to a northern person. So to find out that chimps can is quite surprising. Yes, indeed. And it's, it's really exciting. Previously, we thought that 
all other primate calls, the structure of those calls is really determined by their arousal or their emotional state. Um, and they don't really have much control over the structure of their calls. Um, humans seem to be really special in that way. But what this study shows is that actually, although they're not coming up with new calls to label things in their environment, but they are able to actually change the acoustic structure. And because we found that that change happened independent of their preference for apples, it does seem to be that the first evidence that they can control the structure of their calls independent from the emotion or the arousal that they're actually feeling. So that's really exciting. Claire Jackson talking to Katie Slocum about chimps and their chatter. Yeah, we didn't have the recording of it saying, I'll see you, Jimmy, but that's, uh, that's next time. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Chris Smith. Still to come on the programme, back to school for chemistry teachers, the common classroom experiment which has a brand new explanation. But first, figuring out how sperm gear themselves up to fertilise an egg is quite difficult to study. For a start, standardising the conditions and then being able to reproducibly study each sperm cell without unintentionally altering its biochemistry is pretty tricky. But now a German team have come up with a way to make remote-controlled sperm that you can turn on with just a flash of light. With us from the Centre of Advanced European Studies and Research Germany is Dr Dagmar Wachten, who led the study. Hello, Dagmar. Hello. Why on earth would you want, first of all, to make remote-controlled sperm? What was your motivation? Now that's a good question. So what we tried was basically to have a tool that we can use to control sperm function, and that is not disturbed by any other means. And here, light is the most easiest way to do that because you can quickly turn it on and off. If you were to use drugs or other chemicals on the sperm to control their activity, I suppose there might be side effects. Yes, that's true, because sperm are not really easy to handle and they're really prone to artifacts, in particular when you use pharmacological tools. And that's why we want to step away from that and then use light. How does one go about making sperm sensitive to light so you can turn them on and off in this way? So the first thing you need to do, you need to engineer them and you need to genetically do that by introducing a molecule that is light sensitive. So usually sperm don't contain light sensitive molecules. So what we did, we used a light sensitive molecule that allowed us to control sperm motility. And just by shining light on them, we could speed up the sperm so they swim faster. How do you get the light sensitive molecule into the sperm in the first place? So we would need to do here a transgenic approach, meaning we would need to engineer a fertilized oocyte. So we introduce a piece of DNA into this oocyte and from this create a new mouse. And this mouse then contains this light-sensitive molecule just in its sperm. I see. So by putting the gene for the light-sensitive molecule into the mouse in the first place, then its sperm are naturally produced with this particular molecule in them. Exactly. Uh, And they're only activated essentially when you shine the light on them then? Yeah. So what we do is we prep those sperm, those genetically engineered sperm in the dark, and in the dark they're completely behaving normally, like normal sperm would do. But only when we shine light on them, these sperm swim faster because their tails are beating faster. What is this showing you? What can you do with these sperm now that we couldn't do before? So before it was really tricky to to study particular signaling pathways in sperm and analyze which molecules do control which sperm function. Now having this tool, we can just really precisely um, switch on a particular sperm function, namely sperm motility, and understand how this is regulated in a really precise manner. 
And I suppose that this may have a long-term benefit for people who potentially suffer from, say, subfertility or infertility, because the more we understand about how sperm work, the better place we are to try to develop better treatments. Of course. I mean, at first, we want to understand what is going wrong in those patients, because so far our understanding is not sufficient to really say what is going wrong in a particular patient. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Dagmar, thank you very much. That's Dagmar Vakton describing the world's first remote-controlled sperm just activated by light, a study that she published just recently in the journal eLife. Scientists sometimes say of their discoveries that we'll need to rewrite the textbooks on the subject, but now researchers really have taken a red pen to the explanation for one of the most famous school chemistry experiments, the one when a lump of sodium metal burns when it's dropped into water. A science writer Mark Peplow explained to Chris. It's a favourite school chemistry demonstration. You drop a chunk of sodium metal in a bowl of water and watch it skitter around on the surface, fizzing and popping as it reacts with water to make hydrogen gas. Potassium, it's even better. You throw that in and you can get quite a hefty explosion. But why does it explode? The dogma that gets trotted out in the classroom is that the metal is so hot that it ignites the hydrogen that's being made and it burns. That's exactly what we were told at school and what teachers uh, continue to tell their pupils. But a team of chemists in Prague has now used high-speed cameras to prove that something else is going on. Running at 10,000 frames per second, they videoed an alloy of sodium and potassium, which is a liquid, dropping into water. After just 0.4 milliseconds, they saw little spikes of metal shooting out from the droplet of alloy, which is far too fast to be caused by heating or hydrogen explosion. And around the same time, the water briefly turns a very distinctive dark blue colour. Now, I know, it's very mysterious. So to work out what was going on, the chemists did some computer simulations of the reaction, and they calculated that each atom at the surface lost an electron within just a few picoseconds of hitting the water. That's a trillionth of a second. That's roughly the time it takes for light to travel a millimetre. Now, when lots of electrons are dissolved in water, they create a blue colour, exactly what they saw in the video. And what's causing the little spikes of metal then? Ah, well, this is the cool bit. Once those electrons have left the metal droplet, that leaves a lot of positively charged metal metal atoms behind. Now, those repel each other like crazy, so strongly that they blast apart, forming those spikes. Now, this actually seems to resolve a a question that some people have raised about the old explanation for this reaction. You'd expect all that hydrogen gas and steam roiling around the surface of the metal. You'd think that would prevent more water from reaching the fresh metal underneath, and that would actually slow the reaction down. But the point is the metal spikes can actually burst through that layer, so the metal keeps reacting with the water. Goodness. And what's the reason for the hydrogen then igniting is that genuinely just the heat from the metal of the reaction or is something else triggering that yeah no that's right the heat of the reaction is is ultimately going to ignite the hydrogen but that's happening much later than this first explosive process now the killer question here must be what's the practical purpose of having done this study is it purely just academic interest or does this inform some other areas of chemistry that we hadn't previously ventured into 
the researchers who did this in Prague say that their main motivation for doing this was just to try and understand this long-standing puzzle of exactly what was going on in the reaction. And their hope really is that we often say that this research will rewrite the textbooks, but in this case, they really hope that it will because they want to make sure that teachers are giving the true nuanced picture of what's actually going on in this reaction to their students. And a gold star for science writer Mark Peplow for teaching it to us properly. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Now, on to the main theme for the show this week. Ahead of Valentine's Day, we're going to be exploring the scientific basis for that seemingly irrational behaviour, love. We'll find out how to give out the right signals on that crucial first encounter, discover what makes couples compatible, and hear how maths can help you maintain a healthy relationship. First up, despite a long history of being blamed for coming between couples, more recently computers and online dating sites are proving to be the leading way to meet people, especially if you know how best to pimp your profile. Hannah Critchlow. Online dating. Have you tried it? If so, you're not alone. According to the data-crunching website, The Statistic Brain, of the 50 million Americans currently single, a whopping 75% of these have gone online looking for love. It's a big book business with $1.25 billion yearly turnover. Why? It meets with some success. 17% of American marriages in the last year report having originated from online love. Back over this side of the pond, myself and friends have also given it a go. Have we met with success? Largely no. Well, first up, I wanted to find out exactly how these online dating algorithms are meant to work. My name is Matea Jamnik and I'm a senior lecturer at the Computer Lab at the University of Cambridge. So online dating algorithms gather information about individuals, about what those individuals like and don't like and what they would expect from potential candidate matches. They assign weights to these characteristics and then they put all of that information into a big equation and fit in those numbers into a big formula and come out with a percentage, which is a potential match. Hmm, okay, so how to maximise the chances of online love? I spoke with data analysts and mathematicians who've used their tricks of the trade to do just that. Amy Webb works with data to help predict businesses' future, and she describes how she tackled online dating. Um, At the end of one particularly horrible date, I went home and I was really upset and I called my sister and she had mentioned to me at the beginning of Mary Poppins that the two kids keep going through nannies over and over again and they can't find one. And so they make a list of everything they could possibly want in a nanny. And then, you know, miraculously, Mary Poppins shows up. And so my sister said to me, you know, why don't you make a list of every single possible thing you could want? And then maybe Mr. Magical, wonderful person will appear for you. So I sat down and I started making this list. And ultimately, I wound up with 72 different data points. I needed to figure out a way to prioritize that. So I assigned weighted values to each one. And so I had a top tier and a secondary tier and and created a a formula. But basically what I was trying to do was to quantify, you know, these are the things that are the most important. And unless somebody meets a minimum number of points, then it's just going to be wasting my time. So I'd come up with this crazy formula and I, and I'd sort of figured out what it was that I was looking for. It took about three weeks 
But at long last, um, I found a profile that met the minimum number of points. And, you know, we started chatting and I didn't go out with him right away. So it decided we should take a couple weeks and I wanted to really make sure I was scoring the criteria correctly. And when we met in person, that wound up being the last first date I ever went on. And that's the guy that I married. Next, I spoke with Chris McKinley. He joined a dating site whilst finishing his maths PhD. These two projects kind of merged. Dissatisfied with how the dating site worked, Chris wrote code to extract data from over 20,000 female profiles. And he applied algorithms to the data to figure out what was popular and what would match well with the ladies that he liked. And from that data, Chris was able to create his very own super profile. To become the most popular male profile in Los Angeles. Before I did this, I maybe had 50 or so people that I matched at 90% or higher. And after that, the number just in Los Angeles was about 30,000. I started going out on lots of dates and I kept them pretty short, you know, maybe 20, 25 minute coffee dates. Because these were dates with people who'd answered several hundred multiple choice questions in a statistically significantly similar fashion. Funny other similarities would creep out. Like at one point, eight out of nine people in a row were the exact same specific kind of funny coffee drink called a flat white. You know, people would ask the same questions in the same order, kind of have the same color, like iPhone case, similar affectations. There was definitely a Groundhog Day feel to the whole thing. It got a little bit alienating for me for a while. I I would go on these dates and, and a lot of them would be really similar. But for them, oftentimes I'd be the highest match on the website that they'd ever seen. Sometimes after several years of being on the site, they were generally like really interested in meeting, you know, and and invested in like having a really good first date experience. I got very good at them because they were very similar to one another. When to like lean in and show interest, when to like not there and there was very little at stake for me because I usually had seven or eight dates set up after. But it ended well, I believe. Yeah, it ended really well. I met someone who was just like completely blew me away. And and that happened on about the 90th date when I I met my fiance, Christine. And then what do you think the chances are of you meeting your future wife, your fiance, um, had you not done all of this reverse engineering? This particular woman, zero. I think that for any person, there's probably a couple other people on the planet that they would be really, really happy with for the rest of their lives. And and I'm really lucky to have met one of them. Back to Matia Yamnik on her analysis of the matchmaking skills of online dating sites. When people have done statistics about how successful they are, whether they lead to true love and long-term relationships. And the criticism is that often they are no more reliable than just randomly picking people. What they do provide is a mechanism of meeting people, which in nowadays busy lives, it's becoming increasingly more difficult. Matia Yamnik and before her successful online daters Chris McKinley and Amy Webb. Got us quite a lot of dates even by your standards, Kat. So once you've spotted that special someone, there's always that agonising uncertainty over whether they might feel the same way. So can science help you? Nathan Pipitone from Adams State University, Colorado, studies the giveaway signals that indicate romantic interest. So first of all, when people are actually sizing each other up, um, looking at the physical side of things, what actually are we attracted to and by? 
A lot of our main attraction seems to come from the visual domain. So we're looking at, for example, characteristic features of males. We're looking at stature. We're looking at muscularity. We're looking at confidence types of behaviors and so on and so forth. But we're not all visual creatures. And so we actually use all of our senses when it comes to in-person mate assessment. So not only the visual domain, but in the auditory domain, which is the focus of my work, and even the olfactory domain how somebody smells, and even, surprisingly, the gustatory domain. A colleague of mine has showed that kissing behavior conveys a lot of underlying biological information to one another. Well, we learned on the program last week that uh, a kiss also conveys something in the region of 80 million different microbes per five-second intimate encounter. <laughs> exactly, and some of those microbes are conveying good information, some of those microbes are conveying some bad information. So lots of um, biological transmission, if you will, in, uh, in a kiss. And all this gets integrated in your brain forming an opinion of that person and whether or not you like them. Tell me more about the sound side of things then. Some of my work has shown that women that speak higher in pitch, and we've done this in, in a natural fertility population, they actually produce more children and grandchildren. And so fundamental frequency seems to be one of the most important vocal acoustics that allows us to assess good mates from bad ones. Is that biologically plausible? Why should a woman who is more fecund, more fertile, have a higher pitch to her voice than one who's less likely to bear offspring? Is it just because someone who's less likely to bear offspring with a low-pitched voice is because they look more masculine and therefore are less attractive, so they get actually fewer partners? Well, in, in terms of females, we think it's due to um, how estrogen not only shapes the female voice, but also is related to female fertility. And so women speaking on a higher-pitched voice, we think that this is an indicator of trait estrogen levels. And so not only does, does estrogen, uh, a very important component in reproduction, but it's also shaping the the larynx and it's shaping how women are speaking as well and so this is why we think there's this uh, systematic correlation with between pitch and fertility over the course of a month a woman's menstrual cycle means that her hormone levels do wax and wane estrogen foremost among them peaking in the middle of the cycle around day 14 when you are on average most likely to conceive if you have sex then so does this mean that a woman's voice changes across the month then and perhaps the signal about when you're most fertile coincides with that high estrogen peak. This is precisely what we think is going on. And so when we look at uh, how a woman produces speech across the menstrual cycle, we've been able to document a systematic change in the level of attractiveness attributed to women that are naturally cycling. Um, if we record the voice from the same females at different points of the menstrual cycle and then play back those voices to independent raters that haven't seen them, their voices recorded at high fertility are rated as more attractive compared to voices recorded at low fertility. And it's an overall subtle effect, but it's a very systematic shift that, we're, that we've been able to pick up on. Can you give us some samples of, of what it sounds like in the, let's say, low fertile state versus the high fertile state? So in this voice sample, you hear a voice recording of a woman counting from one to five, and this is the low fertility recording. One, two, three, four, five. In another recording, you'll hear uh, the same woman counting from one to five, but the only difference is that this was recorded at a time of high fertility. One, two... Three, four, five. Now, they do actually sound a bit different. And there's no way that the woman just talks like that on one occasion and the other way on another occasion. This is a consistent finding, is it, that, that she sounds more high-pitched on the more fertile situation? 
Well, what's interesting, so so between individuals, pitch makes a difference. And so as one woman speaks, uh, we've compared that recording in terms of attractiveness to another woman um, speaking. Pitch seems to make a difference. But within the same individual, one study has found that pitch does systematically change. But there's been a, a several other findings that haven't been able to replicate that. And so we can't just boil down voice attractiveness across the menstrual cycle to voice pitch. There's a host of acoustics that are probably changing in systematic ways. What's interesting is that we don't need the acoustic to, to find the effect, the human brain almost instantaneously picks up on this slight attractiveness difference. So we still have a lot of work to do in this area in terms of the, the proximate uh, vocal acoustics actually affecting voice attractiveness. And a group of people rated these voices according to their attractiveness uh, without actually seeing the person speaking. So they weren't being biased by what that individual looked like purely by what they could hear. Exactly. It was just by uh, the sole sound of their voice. And so our work has shown that just by speaking to other individuals, the sound of your voice conveys a host of biologically relevant information that correlates with attractiveness indices in the visual domain. And so just by using the sound of somebody's voice, you can you can pick up a lot of information related to um, whether you're going to be attracted to that person. Now, what about individuals who are using oral contraceptive pills, for example, which effectively fool you? your body into believing it's permanently pregnant, the result being that you just don't ovulate and you don't have this big flux in hormones with a surge in the middle of the cycle. Do those individuals not show this behaviour then? One would predict that they wouldn't. Precisely. And so with all of our research, we always conduct a control group of women. We we, we, uh, record their voices at different times of the menstrual cycle. But then they are using hormonal contraceptive. And so we, we look at voice attractiveness differences at, quote unquote, high fertility times in these women compared to low fertility times. And we haven't been able to find anything with women using hormonal contraceptive. So using hormonal birth control seems to truncate this, this attractiveness response across the menstrual cycle. Does that in turn then mean that there's the possibility that if someone mates and dates while they're taking the oral contraceptive pill, that subsequently were they to stop the pill, they could be in for a disappointment. Exactly. That's a really interesting implication. And so looking at women that use hormonal contraceptives, they seem to prefer less masculine types of characteristics of men. So they prefer more feminine uh, male traits. And these are these are in the behavioral domain and in the physical domain. So not as much muscle mass, not as uh, rogue or, or uh, impulsive. These are characteristics that naturally cycling females tend to like more than women using hormonal contraceptive. So this is interesting for uh, monogamous pair bonds. If women are using a hormonal birth control and they found a mate and then they want to start a family someday and they, they decide to go off of the, the, the pill or whatever they're using, they might find that their mate isn't what they thought they were. So this is really interesting to see how uh, hormonal birth control is affecting relationships throughout the world. Thank you very much. That's Nathan Pipitone. Now, Nate mentioned some signals to help boost your chances on that crucial first date. But what about other signs? Could you be emitting information maybe from your armpits without realising it? What would a sniff test reveal about you? So with us to discuss some of these uh, more intimate issues of couple compatibility for producing babies is Robert Winston, again, Emeritus Professor of Fertility Studies at Imperial College London. Hi, Robert. Hi. So tell me a little bit about the smell of love. What do we know about what attracts people uh, in terms of of their, of their smell? Well, the interesting thing about pheromones is you may not actually smell them. I mean, they may be imperceptible.
acceptable, but um, it's been clearly shown by a number of people, Craig Roberts, for example. And Craig has shown in his rather nice work that, uh, I mean, one experiment we did together many years ago was to take um, T-shirts which had been worn by young women undergraduates who I hadn't met uh, sadly, who had slept in these T-shirts for two nights at the mid-cycle. Uh, they were not on contraception. They were not eating curry, not smoking, not using spicy food. Didn't have bad BO. And then I had to sniff them in a blind test. And then, and I used the word advisedly, rank them in order. <laughs> and, and actually what was interesting was that completely blind, uh, because I'd been tissue-typed, so, and so had they. So it turned out that the ones whose tissue type was most compatible with mine, those were the pheromones I least liked, while the people who were most dissimilar I immediately scored quite highly in a completely blind test. So it's quite a nice example, I think, of how pheromones may work. And obviously uh, smelling someone's horrible, sweaty, sporty BO is a bit of a turn-off and there's a huge industry in people spraying on perfumes and all kinds of things to, to cover mm. up or change their smell. Is that is that interfering? What what would be the most attractive smell to, uh, to find, or the best way of finding the right smelling part for you. Well, I think we should ask you that. I don't know. But I, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, one, I think one have, we have to be very careful about drawing those conclusions. But of course, don't forget that quite a lot of people find the smell of Philly Ranks Met not unattractive, um, particularly at times when they're making love. So, I mean, you know, I think that it's not very simple. It may well be that in public places we find those sorts of smells quite disgusting. But I think what I think is interesting about pheromones is that you don't need to actually be able to smell them with your olfactory system in the usual sort of way. And, of course, the olfactory system is extraordinarily sensitive. You can detect, you know, uh, one part in, I think, several hundred million of a molecule. So it it is extraordinary how we do that. And in terms of finding this kind of compatibility, if you're thinking about, you know, making babies with someone, is it is it a way of making sure that you're going to make compatible babies or even be able to make babies at all? Well, that's the theory. The theory, of course, is that if you are genetically dissimilar, you're less likely to have uh, a mutation which is uh, recessive, uh, which is the same on the same allele of both partners. That's the theory. And certainly we do know that people who marry dissimilar people are less likely to have deformed or or genetically damaged children. So there's some evidence for that. And in terms of fertility and uh, and trying to make babies with someone, hoping to be compatible with them, are there any signs that maybe people could look for to to see if someone is fertile that they might want to have babies with? You know, is it a, a deep voice uh, for men? We heard about the changes in women, big hips. What are, what are some of the? I don't think myths? I don't know, but I would say that <laughs> you know the best way to find out whether someone is fertile is is to have sex and have sex often. <laughs> and, and, and not necessarily the mid-cycle, by the way, because, of course, although it's been stated on this program just now that ovulation occurs on the 14th day of the cycle, in a 28-day cycle, but doesn't always. And sometimes people can even ovulate during menstruation. So that's why I'm slightly querulous about some of these tests, because actually it's not quite as straightforward as we sometimes kind of put out. Yeah, I mean, the inside of a lady's body isn't made of clockwork. Nor a man's either. (laughs) So in terms of if you are trying to to make some beautiful babies, if people are in the mood this Valentine's Day, are there any things that they could do, maybe that they could eat or or ways that they could try and boost their chances? Oh, that's what it's about. It's about Valentine's Day. Well, maybe you just feel like love all the time. um, What what could boost people's chances of of conceiving if they want a Valentine's baby? Have a drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> Not too much, though. Well, you know, you know that's another myth because, in fact, you know, there's all this dreadful politically correct stuff going out about alcohol now in pregnancy. But actually, the evidence that alcohol in moderation uh, is in any way dangerous to pregnant women is very, very dubious. And certainly... I'm talking more about if you have too many and just pass out before oh, well, you can get to oh, no, it. I, I, I'm not. I'm not arguing. No, I mean, I think we all want to have consensual sex. No, I don't. I, I mean, that, that's a different issue. But if you're but going I, to a restaurant, think, you know, is there? I, yes, but I think you know, going to a restaurant, having a pleasurable occasion, it's all part of loosening those inhibitions, isn't it? I mean, what is quite interesting, and I don't want to bore you about this too long, but we did some research many years ago where in a large cohort of uh, infertile women who are undergoing various treatments for infertility, not only IVF, what we found was that people who had regular orgasm were actually less likely they were they were less likely to be infertile, and moreover, if they were infertile, they would usually have a specific cause for their infertility. People with unexplained infertility often were more likely to be anorgasmic, and that would suggest that orgasm and contraction of the genital tract may have something to do with fertility. So again, pleasurable intercourse. So lots of having lots of fun if you're out there having a fun Valentine's Day. Uh, thank you very much. That's Robert Winston. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the show, it's at Naked Scientist. You can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And on Twitter, Kat, you've been rebranded not as Kat Arney, but Kat Army. I'm not sure if you're fond of our feline friends, but <laughs> you appear so. to be the leader of an army of them. Uh, I'll, I'll go with that. We're talking about the science of love in the anticipation of Valentine's Day this week and the path of true love never runs smooth, or so the saying goes. But is there a mathematical formula for a long and happy relationship? University College London's Hannah Fry has just published a book on this subject, so so she clearly believes that there is something in it. Um, So when it comes to maths, Hannah, in the words of Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Do you like Tina Turner, by the way? <laughs> I'm an enormous fan, yes, uh, especially now. Math can't really help us describe the emotional side of love, I suppose. It's very difficult to formulate, uh, you know, the thrill of romance into a set of equations. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have anything to offer, because the way that we date each other, the way that we act throughout our love life, the way that we find partners, um, all has lots of patterns associated with it. And those patterns, maths is uniquely placed to be able to describe and investigate them. Tell us about some of the most important ones. Some of the most important ones. Well, so my personal favourite is something known as the stable marriage problem, which you can reformulate to look at a group of friends who are in a bar and deciding whether or not to approach people they find attractive at the party. And so it turns out, you can prove it mathematically, that if you are the people who do the approaching rather than sit back and wait for suitors to come to you, you will always, always end up much better off than just being the wallflower in the corner. You've got to sort of be in it to win it, so yeah, to speak. exactly, and it kind of makes sense because if you think that if you go out to if you're sort of, you know proactive and you go out to get what you want, you're going to end up with the best person who will have you. Whereas if you stand back and wait for people to come to you, you'll end up with the least bad person who approaches you. I got a Valentine's Day card once from um, somebody and it had two horses having dinner, and it said uh, one of them saying, "I want a stable relationship," and the other one said, "I'll have sex anywhere." 
But that's just me. Uh, now, what about the, the wedding? Let's assume, Hannah, that, that actually yeah. this mating and dating game does go well and, and mm-hmm. you know, your maths does, does enable you to meet a, a significant number of partners who uh, end up eventually one of them is compatible. Um, where can maths fit into the wedding plan? Yeah. yeah, so the idea behind the book was to, to go through a whole story of all, all different phases of life with love. And so the wedding planning is, is one of them. Um, so, for example, you can, if you're having a, a terrible time deciding on your guest list for your wedding... And having got married 18 months ago, I know how terrible it can be. You want to be really careful in terms of the number of people you invite because you don't want to end up overfilling your venue or equally you don't want to end up with loads of empty spaces when you could have invited more people. And equally sending out invitations in phases, people get offended. It's all, I mean, it's a, diff- it's a minefield. So there is a, a, one way that you can use maths to help you decide how many people to invite. And that's by assigning uh, a probability to each person that you expect to arrive and looking at it in those terms. So adding up a score as you go down your list and then cutting off when you hit the capacity of your venue. And if you do that, on average, uh, you'll end up with the right number of people coming up to your wedding. Doesn't this kind of rob the occasion of romance a little bit to think there's a mathematical formula behind where you are on the guest list? (laughs) Well, no, I think it's very practical, actually. Better to be on the guest list than uh, be left out due to a, a misjudgment. Indeed. Uh, what about where you sit people, though? There must be some probabilities and permutations. I mean, it was the old probability problem at school, wasn't yeah. it? Where you've got X number of seats around the table. How many places are there to put grandma, then granddad, and so on? So yeah, exactly. there, there's an important statistics angle to this, isn't there? Yes, yeah, so there was a paper, actually, that was published by um, Bellows and Peterson a few years ago. They're actually a married couple, and they, they based the paper on their own table plan at their wedding. And they por- borrowed an idea from economics where you assign a utility or a happiness score, if you like, between each possible pairing of, um, of guests at your wedding and then work through all the different possible table combinations so that you can end up with a quantitative assessment of how good your table plan is. Do you need a computer program to do this? Uh, I mean, is there yeah, more I mean, solutions yeah. than atoms in the known universe? <laughs> yes, there is. Although a uh, computer program can do it in, you know, a mere 36 hours. So, I mean, just ask your, your friendly neighbourhood mathematician for help if you get stuck. I mean, I always find that they're more than willing to help out. The book also sort of ventures into the domain of once you're married, how do you stay married? Because that's obviously an important issue because it is a fact that about half of all marriages do founder, don't they? What does maths have to say about that? Well, so this is uh, one of my absolute favourite studies. It's a really incredible piece of interdisciplinary work between a psychologist and a mathematician. And psychologist John Gottman spent uh, decades filming couples in conversation with each other, asking them to talk about the most contentious issue in their relationship. And he and his team came up with a way to score how negative or positive each person was being in each turn in the conversation. But when Gottman teamed up with mathematician James Murray, they were able to translate this into a mathematical model and really get to the heart of what it was that caused the spirals of negativity that end up causing divorce. So what do I have to do? Tell me, how do I okay. keep my so wife the, sweet? The key, the key idea is something called uh, the negativity threshold. So that's basically how annoying one person has to be before the other person really reacts strongly. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you might think that good relationships are all about compromise and, uh, you know, giving each other room to be yourself. Um, so relationships with a really, uh, really high threshold for negativity might do well. But actually, the team found that the opposite is true. It's the, the relationships with a really low negativity 
threshold that do well. The ones that, if something bothers them, they bring it up and they deal with it immediately and they don't let anything fester so that small things never end up becoming a really big deal. Yes, I've always said that to people, that actually if you let it sort of fester and then mm. it boils up, then it's a bit like a pressure cooker and then well, it suddenly goes off yeah. catastrophically, whereas if you have lots of little bickering. I mean, this is my philosophy. <laughs> I know, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the, the, the data from real-life couples supports it. Well, I'm very pleased. I'll tell my wife. We'll go home and I'll start. I'll be proactive, Hannah. I'll go Do home and I'll have an arguing. argument tonight and, <laughs> yeah. and say, look, this is all in the interest of a healthy relationship. Exactly. Hannah Fry from University College London. Thank you very much. Her book, The Mathematics of Love, is out now. Thank you also to our other guests this week who are Nathan Pipitone and Robert Winston. And now Khalil Thurloway has been busy bridging the gap across the animal kingdom to find the answer to this question tweeted in by Bar Royal. His attraction for the same sex found in animals too. There are lots of behaviours that we sometimes think of as exclusively human, but in many cases, upon investigation, we find out we're not so different from our animal cousins. To see if this is the case here, I heard from Dr Paul Vasey from the University of Lethbridge in Canada. Same-sex sexual behaviour, such as courtship, mounting and pair bonding, has been documented in well over 100 species worldwide. Same-sex sexual preferences in animals are harder to document conclusively because this requires demonstrating that an individual chooses a same-sex sexual partner even though opposite-sex mates are both available and willing. Despite the fact that such data can be difficult to collect, preferences for sexual partners of the same sex have been documented in a number of animal species, most notably Japanese monkeys. In that particular primate species, females in certain populations routinely choose female sexual partners despite the fact that motivated male mates are available. In most species, individuals that engage in same-sex sexual behavior also engage in sex with opposite-sex mates. So overall, they exhibit a bisexual pattern of sexual orientation. In domestic sheep, however, about 6 to 10% of males only court other males and engage in same-sex sexual behavior exclusively, never interacting sexually with females. Consequently, scientists talk about these rams as being homosexual with respect to their sexual orientation. This is higher than many estimates of homosexuality in the human population. Here in the UK, for example, the Office for National Statistics reported in 2011 that roughly 1.5% of adults describe themselves as gay or lesbian. Estimates vary, however, and mostly rely on self-reported survey data, which can result in inaccuracies. But why do animals exhibit homosexual behaviour in the first place? It certainly won't accomplish the most obvious purpose of mating, which is to produce offspring. In many instances... Animals use same-sex sexual behavior to facilitate adaptive social goals. For example, bonobos, or pygmy chimpanzees, use same-sex genital rubbing to reduce tension associated with food sharing, to form alliances, and to reconcile conflicts. However, in some species like Japanese monkeys, individuals engage in same-sex sexual interactions simply because they're sexually gratifying and not because they serve any sort of social function. Whether it's to enhance their social position, improve group cohesion or simply because they enjoy it. There are many natural examples of non-human animals exhibiting homosexual and bisexual behaviour. There is, however, no evidence of animals being ostracised for this, so homophobia appears to be a uniquely human trait. Food for thought, right? Next week, we'll be getting hands-on with this question from Hannah. I've heard that London cab drivers get bigger parts of their brain from having to know where all the roads are. And I'm wondering if the bit of my brain that makes my right thumb type text messages on my phone might also be changing. If you know the answer, then you can get your thumbs going. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or get stuck into the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash 
Forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Hannah Critchlow and also Khalil Thurloway and Daniel Blackwell for production. Next time, we'll be finding out what your phone says about you, but without you realising it. The answer is quite a lot, in fact, and it's telling would-be eavesdroppers who you are, where you are, and even who your friends are. Next time, we'll show you how to protect yourself. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and the Wellcome Trust. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.